be in Matthew 9 this morning. If you will turn there with me. As we continue our study on healing, this week we're looking at uh, Jesus healing a paralyzed man. Uh, but I want to start by asking, have you ever had a breakthrough in your life? A moment when you realized something you had never considered before, and then it led to personal growth, things getting better. Maybe even something that freed you from a, a way of thinking or living where you felt stuck and unable to move. An aha moment changed the course of your life. Sometimes it can be something simple. I remember when a friend of mine told me that I was eating bananas all wrong. I, I was holding them upside down, he told me. He said, if I pinched and peeled from the, the top where the little part is, instead of the stem, that it would be easier to hold when I got down to the final bites. Revolutionized the way I eat bananas now, right? So I hold them by the stem. It's so much easier. Uh, sometimes a breakthrough can be much more complex. Like the story of how I quit smoking. I started when I was in college, and friends would come over and we would uh, smoke while sitting around on the front porch telling stories or jokes or talking about life. Or, uh, and I got hooked on uh, what's called clove cigarettes. I don't know if you've heard of those, but they, I don't even know if they sell them anymore. They used to sell them, clove cigarettes. Uh, they tasted good. Like, like, I don't know, clove is just like, it's like cinnamon, and like it's, it's had a good taste to it. And, um, <coughs> See, I enjoyed the aroma that they gave off, uh, but I smoked regular cigarettes too, and, and little did I realize then what they were doing to my lungs and my health. Uh, I would get sick, and then I couldn't really cough right because I didn't have the force of air in my lungs to produce any power, uh, and this went on for years. Now, Melissa and I had been married for several years, and, and it was after Bailey and Jackson had both been born, and they were toddlers, actually. I was still sneaking out onto the porch to smoke throughout the day. Uh, I was addicted. I, I couldn't resist the urge. And the truth is, I, I really didn't want to. I still enjoyed it in spite of the negative effects that it had on my health and my relationship with Melissa. And never mind that I was ignoring the pull of the Holy Spirit to give it up. And then one day, I experienced a pain at the base of my rib cage that was overwhelming. It was so bad, we ended up going to the emergency room at the nearest hospital, and after several tests, we found out that I had acute pancreatitis. Now, I don't think these two things are related, but they were in my life. I was out for several days, basically in a medically-induced coma, uh, and when I finally came to, I realized uh, that I, since I had started smoking, I had never gone a day without smoking several cigarettes. And I definitely hadn't gone five days, and that's how long that I hadn't had any. And as I walked the hall on my floor, they told me to walk to get my strength back on. And so as I'm walking the hall on the floor, and I'm looking in at people who are in much worse shape than me, I felt the Spirit tell me, like, it's time for you to give this up. Smoking had been like a form of worship for me. That every time I stepped out on the porch, I was following a sort of religious 
ritual and that I was offering my body as a sacrifice to the death that it would inevitably bring. And this breakthrough led me to quitting. I surrendered my desire for cigarettes to the Holy Spirit and never smoked another cigarette. Honest to goodness. As far as I'm concerned, it was a miracle. But that's kind of how breakthroughs are. They can be miraculous. They can lead to incredible change in our lives. And that's why they are so necessary to our lives, especially as we follow Jesus. Because none of us are perfect, but we are all on the journey together. And it's important that we keep that in mind as well, because our faith is not a solitary thing. It isn't something practiced in isolation. It is necessarily something we practice in community with each other. Like this morning. Faith is like a vast system of interconnected roots that holds us up. And all of this is part of what we are going to see today in the story of Jesus healing this paralyzed man. So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to read in Matthew 9, beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. May God bless the reading of this word. Okay, so as we pick up the story, Jesus had been across the Sea of Galilee teaching and healing people on the eastern side, and he was headed home to Capernaum, which is on the west side. Uh, much like what we saw when he encountered the centurion, he was just coming back into town after sort of going out and doing uh, his teaching ministry and healing and all that. We read that on the day he came home, someone brought a man to him who was paralyzed. Now, in the version of this same story found in Mark 2, we get some more details. Uh, we, we discover that Jesus had actually drawn quite a crowd around him, and that the friends that brought this paralytic man to Jesus, they had to sort of go up onto the roof and remove part of the thatch roof and then lower their friend down to Jesus to get to him. There was that many people, it was that crowded. See, they were willing to make a, that breakthrough into the house so that their friend might have an even more meaningful breakthrough in his life. In verse 2, Matthew states that when Jesus saw their faith, he took action. And this is interesting for numerous reasons. Among them is the fact that it wasn't the faith of the man that changed his situation. It was the faith of his friends, his community, that changed it. 
This guy was paralyzed. He had very little control over his own life. Without the help of his friends, he would have never even met Jesus. But his friends had clearly heard about Jesus. They had heard about what he was doing. And like the Roman centurion, they trusted in his power and authority. So they brought their friend to see him, to be healed. That wasn't the first thing on Jesus' mind in that moment. In many stories of healing, we read that Jesus healed the people, and that's kind of the whole story, is he healed them, and they went on and did the things, right? After all, Jesus didn't say anything to the Roman centurion about his sins being forgiven. Not that they weren't, but that wasn't his major concern there. So why did he respond differently here? Well, the first thing Jesus said when he saw the man and the, and the faith of his friends was, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And the Greek word used at the beginning of that sentence there is tharseo. And it means to be of good courage. Literally, it actually means to radiate warm confidence. In other words, Jesus wanted this man to have a confidence about being forgiven that warmed him up inside and made him bold. Have you ever experienced anything like that? A confidence in being forgiven that warms you up inside and makes you bold? So many of us struggle with feeling forgiven. I know I do. But we know that that's what Jesus promises, but for various reasons we still don't have it locked down. We may think we have done too many bad things, struggling to forgive ourselves for what we knew was wrong. Or maybe we hurt someone and we're not able to get past it. It seems like something along these lines may have been the case for this paralyzed man, because Jesus didn't heal him and then send him on his way. He told him to take heart because his sins were forgiven. Almost as if his physical situation was somehow connected with his spiritual situation. Now, we've talked briefly about this over the past few weeks, about the need for healing in the four main areas, right? Physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental. The reality is that all of these are connected because they're all part of who we are. Which means we need healing in our whole being. And that's something we don't spend a lot of time thinking about or acting on. We may ask for prayers concerning some physical ailment on an occasion. We may ask for a spiritual need uh, for a friend who needs to know Jesus or something along those lines. But we rarely open up about our own spiritual needs or about our emotional and mental needs. And for most of us, it's a matter of not showing weakness or vulnerability. If we don't open up, we can't be hurt. But what we overlook or ignore is that God created us to be social beings in a community, to trust in others and to be vulnerable at times. Not to everyone, but to someone. And this is why it's so interesting that this paralyzed man's friends are the ones who showed faith in Jesus. It's as if he didn't have any faith. Maybe it was because of the paralysis. He blamed God like many of us do. Or maybe 
That was just a symptom of his real problem. Maybe he had done something terrible and was injured as a result. Maybe there was something psychosomatic going on, something in his brain that was keeping his body from working as it should. Or maybe he was suffering from what we now call conversion disorder. It's a medical condition where mental or emotional stress can manifest in physical symptoms. An example being maybe a child who has suffered a traumatic situation not being able to talk. Nothing is wrong with their mouth or vocal cords. It's all a matter of their body physically manifesting symptoms due to whatever caused the trauma. It's a neurological disorder that no one in the first century would have known anything about. But Jesus saw this man's primary need and addressed it first. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Some would say forgiveness is everyone's primary need. I agree. But it seems like this man's paralysis was somehow connected directly to his sins. Not that God paralyzed him for sinning. That's not what I'm saying. But that he was locked up inside. And it manifested physically. That his inability to access or accept God's forgiveness was resulting in physical stress which somehow showed up in him being paralyzed. So Jesus reassured him that he was forgiven. I think many of us need to hear this today. Need to receive it in our own lives. I know I struggle with certain things that I've done, certain things that trusting in Jesus should take care of, but I still find myself angry sometimes, or sad, or even confused. And it's inevitably, invariably tied to those things that I haven't let go of. Those things that I carry around like souvenirs from bad vacation. And some people call this kind of thing baggage. There's a song that came out recently that sort of sums this up pretty well. It's called Hope by an artist named NF, and the lyrics are, I've done things that I regret, I've said things I can't take back, was a lost soul at a crossroad who had no hope, but I changed that. I've spent years of my life holding on to things I never should have kept, full of hatred. Years of my life carrying a lot of baggage that I should have walked away from. This is probably true of a lot of people. We can't forgive ourselves for things we have said and done and it locks us up inside. It keeps us from being whole. Keeps us from growing in our faith. Keeps us from being able to be who Jesus wants us to be. So why did Jesus tell this man his sins were forgiven? Because that's really what this man needed to hear more than anything else. That's the breakthrough that would change his life. And it's what Jesus is still saying to each of us as we wrestle with the weight of our choices and all our regrets. He is still saying, take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. This man didn't ask for forgiveness. 
He didn't bring a sin offering. He didn't confess any sins. He wasn't baptized, at least not yet. But Jesus reassured him that his sins were forgiven. And maybe this is why the scribes took issue with this whole scene. Maybe it's why they mumbled about Jesus blaspheming. He wasn't following the rules. The rules of forgiveness have clearly been laid out in Leviticus 4 through 7. Now here's just an excerpt of that section of scripture from Leviticus 4, 32 through 35. Just a few verses. If a man brings a lamb as his sin, as his offering for sin, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all of its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he committed and he shall be forgiven. Paralyzed man didn't have a lamb, didn't bring it to temple. No priest took his sacrifice and did what was prescribed in that passage. But Jesus, who is the sacrificial lamb, said to him, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. If Jesus was going to tell people they were forgiven without making them do all the stuff, it was going to cause serious problems for the scribes and the religious leaders. It would mean the religious leaders would no longer be in charge of who was forgiven and who wasn't. They would no longer be the gatekeepers, which in turn meant they would no longer hold power and authority over the people. All of that would be gone. We know that the religious leaders had corrupted the sacrificial system at the temple by installing a tax and then forcing a monetary exchange that lined their pockets. And this is why Jesus went in and flipped their tables and drove everyone out, calling them a bunch of thieves. And these scribes are part of that. They're part of that system. They saw Jesus as a threat. They recognized right away that if he went around telling people they were forgiven without making them do all the rituals, it would be the end of their sort of cozy way of life. What they missed in all this was that Jesus had been clearly displaying the power and authority of God throughout his ministry. They did realize it, though, at, at least at some point, because we see evidence of it. Such as when Nicodemus came and spoke to Jesus, uh, we read about that in John 3, verses 1 through 2. He said, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus claimed that they knew his miracles meant he was from God. Most of them just didn't care. Because they weren't all that connected or concerned with God, really. The things of God were simply a means to an end for them. 
And this is why Jesus recognized the evil in their hearts for what it was. It's why he openly questioned them about it. And what he saw in them can easily show up in our lives as well. That's the dangerous part of this whole thing. Anytime we reject the forgiveness and healing Jesus has made available to us in favor of continuing to have our own way and do what we want, anytime we hold on to the baggage in our lives instead of releasing it, the stuff that paralyzes our growth, our potential, our ability to be and do what Jesus has called us to be and do. Anytime we refuse what we know is right for the sake of our pride, or our power, or our wealth. Anytime we decline the goodness of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. And I'm terrible about this. That may be a confession you don't expect to hear from your pastor, but it's true. I have rooms full of baggage in the mansion of my mind. Things I won't let go of even though they don't do anything for me. All they do is paralyze me. Maybe not my arms and legs, but my willingness to be forgiven and healed and made whole. It's almost like I think that if I let go of these things, all the pain and sorrow and regret, I will lose myself. That I won't be me anymore. That I'll have nothing left of me. That's the exact opposite of the truth. And I know it in my brain, but somehow not in my heart. Somehow that information hasn't made the journey from knowledge to experience. And I'm not really all that different from the scribes standing at the back of the room whenever Jesus teaches or forgives and or heals, kind of like a ghost haunting the edge of reality. And some of you may be thinking, well, how does this glorify God? How can you go on being a pastor then? And the quicker answer is only by the grace of God. But the more complex answer is that this is how God has always worked. Through imperfect and broken people. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, like them, Jesus confronts me with the reality of my sin, my evil. The darkness in those corners that I don't want to let go of because it defines me. But that's where the glorious part comes in. Because this will not always be who I am. Or how I am. When I gave my life to Jesus, he wasn't shocked to find out that I had held some things back. It didn't take him by surprise that I was not completely forthright in surrendering myself to him 100%. He expected it. He was willing to work with a little bit of faith to make it grow. Like the parable of having faith like a mustard seed and how that can lead to moving mountains. Maybe even the mountains of regret that I carry inside. Or, or whatever it is you are carrying around that needs to be set aside. Maybe we all need to hear Jesus say again and again, Take heart, my child, 
Your sins are forgiven. At this point, Jesus asked the scribes if it was easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. And then he backed up everything by turning to the man and saying, get up, take your bed and go home. And he did. He got up and he went home. His paralysis was gone. He wasn't even weak like we would expect someone who hasn't used their limbs to be. Because he heard the voice of Jesus. The power and authority broke through his paralysis, whatever may have caused it. The voice of Jesus brought him forgiveness and healing right where he was. Jesus said he did this so that the scribes would know that he had the authority to forgive sins. And in saying this, Jesus used the phrase, the Son of Man. And that's found all through the Old Testament. It kind of just refers to humans. In fact, God repeatedly called the prophet Ezekiel, Son of Man, over and over throughout his prophetic book. But there's a very interesting passage that gives us some insight into maybe how Jesus was using this term. It's a little different. In Daniel 7, 13-14, the prophet declared, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Now, in this passage, one who appears in every way to be a man comes before the Ancient of Days, which is a title of God. This man is then given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. And we see this actually happen, or begin to happen, in Acts 1, when Jesus ascended his throne at the right hand of the Father. One like the Son of Man. The kingdom Jesus would ensure and secure by his death, burial, and resurrection was already in motion. As Jesus already had the power and authority he would soon be presented with to forgive sins, to heal, to cast out demons, to bring about a glimpse of the new world that was beginning right in the middle of the old one. Jesus was willing and able, and he consistently did these things, not just in support of his teaching, but as a window into what was coming as a result of his presence in the world. A new world breaking through into the old one, bringing forgiveness and healing and wholeness. And when the crowd that had gathered saw what happened, they were afraid and glorified God, which seems like a fairly natural reaction to something that spectacular, as we've discussed before. But the last bit of Matthew's description here is that they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And this is the way they understood what was happening. Things were changing. We see Jesus specifically talk about this in John 20, verses 22 through 23, when he breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold this forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And we know that when the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost, the disciples were among the first to begin carrying the forgiveness and healing of Jesus into all the world. They went everywhere. But they weren't the only ones. In Luke 10, Jesus commissioned and sent out 70 more into the nearby towns, giving them this same authority. And in Acts 9, we read about how a man named Ananias, who lived in Damascus, brought the forgiveness and healing of God to Saul when he was blinded. Ananias was not one of the twelve. The Holy Spirit that was in them is the same Holy Spirit that's in us. We don't have to be one of the original twelve apostles. It empowers us with the same authority to bring forgiveness and healing into the world now just as they did then. And there's so many people who need this, so many who have no idea about this. Maybe they have heard of Jesus and forgiveness, but it's been something they were told they would have to sort of clean up their acts to receive. This paralyzed man didn't do anything to earn forgiveness. Just like the scribes and religious leaders at the foot of the cross didn't do anything to earn it. Yet Jesus said, Father, forgive them. This is what we are called to do. As followers of Jesus, our mission is to bring <clears throat> forgiveness and healing into the world around us, to offer hope and let people know they can leave their baggage behind. That they can have a breakthrough and grow beyond where they are in life, who they think they have to be, they can be made whole. But we have to believe it first. We have to receive the forgiveness and healing of Jesus and get up out of whatever it is that is paralyzing us. We have to give the Holy Spirit the keys to our minds and our hearts, leaving all our baggage behind so that we can experience what this formerly paralyzed man experienced that day when he got up, took his bed, and went home a new man. Will you pray with me?